0: As long as you accept that being trans is not only a good outcome, but a happy present state, and that it's not up to you to know what it means to be trans, then the end of the rest of this nonsense, you can get on with the project of living.
1: Hello, greetings, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I am Laura Good.
2: And I'm the co-host, Adrian Dobb. (laughs) I thought we were trying a different intro, but...
1: um... No! I'm laughing because this is the second take that Adrian and I have tried to say our names, but we're just gonna. Yeah, go with I think. It. Do you know who we are? I think you know think who you, we are at yeah. this point. I'm Laura. He's Adrian. It us.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's us um,
1: again. Who are we talking to today?
2: So we're talking to Jules Gill-Peterson, who is an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins. It's part of our ongoing series to figure out what's going on in the world of panics. What are what are we afraid of today basically? Um Wither
1: panic. Wither panic.
2: Yeah, <laughs> panic. What's that all about? Um how does it work? Which is actually uh, it turns out to be kind of a like the more we look into this the more I'm glad we have allotted a indefinite number of hours to this question because
1: I'm like damn, this is getting bro. Have your texts? I mean, I sort of know the answer to this, but have your inboxes been blowing up with people talking about cancel culture? I have been getting some very interesting responses in my DMs to the series so far.
2: I mean, I've been popping off about cancel culture for like about two years now, and so like
1: so your DMs have been have been popping off with my for DMs a while. have <laughs> been a garbage
2: fire, and sometimes a very fun garbage fire. There are people sending me like yes, you know, I'm sure you've seen this but kind of emails. And otherwise, yeah, sometimes I do get some some pretty hilarious stuff. I'm really kind of glad that we're sort of not kind of plowing, you know, the same furrows as everyone else. But we're really kind of asking Mm -hmm. a very specific Mm -hmm. question, which is how this panic kind of seems to... Always been shouting distance of you know issues around trans people and specifically mm-hmm. trans children, but at times like forgets about that fact, and <laughs> other times uh, is like very aware of this fact. And Jules was perfect in guiding us through that. Totally, you know, I-, I knew Jules specifically through the amazing book Histories of the Transgender Child, which asks the question both of where does this idea come from? Wh- wh- why are children always sort of central in the trans debate? Mm-hmm. When, for instance, if we think mm-hmm. about like. People who bring up gay people and they're like, think about the children, we're like, oh, that, Mm -hmm. like, what are you actually saying there, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's become, that was a right wing trope and very easily discoverable as that. Mm -hmm. With trans people, we really seem stuck talking about children. And that's not to say that obviously there are important issues around trans children, but it's weird Mm -hmm. that, like, there's a kind of this fixation. On the other hand, Jules' book really does an amazing job. And pointing out that there's this kind of persistent feeling of newness around right. trans children, it's like, oh, we're just not used to it.
1: Which she evidences is completely false. That is That was one of my favorite parts of this discussion. You know, one of the things that everything you're introducing Jules with is reminding me of as I reflect on this conversation is like... Implicit to our discussion is a struggle to define cancel culture, Mm -hmm. I think, like that is a very slippery entity to define. And so I think we have shifted our approach a little bit to say like, okay, in an effort to better understand this, can we at least understand what it intersects with, right? And I think that is one way of sort of defining the bounds of what cancel culture is and is not and what it impacts and what it doesn't impact. And so that's where we drilled down here with a verified expert on trans history. God, talking to Jules was so fascinating because like, I'm such a lit nerd, right? Like you and I are book nerds. We're like writer people. And as I was reflecting on this conversation with Jules, I was like, fucking Christ, the the field of gender studies... Like, the historians make such an important... This is the most obvious point anyone has ever made, that, like, historians are very important to gender studies. But there was something about this conversation with Jules that just really drove that home for me.
2: Yeah, in some way, it is the cardinal discipline, I would say, precisely because yeah. it unsettles so many of these, you know... Assumptions. Oh, well, traditionally, it's been this. It's like yes. The historians are there to be like, please don't use that word. Like, Completely. Turns out human beings tend to rearrange the way they live their lives, like... Especially around questions of gender and sexuality, a lot. The idea that like for the last six thousand years humanity's done X, and now suddenly these weirdo activists are asking you to right, do Y, right? right. Like, almost always collapses like a beautiful, you know, souffle. <laughs> once you is, once you exactly. expose it to the the bare minimum of research, yeah,
1: <laughs> just research. Yeah, there's
2: a beautiful moment that I want to flag for people in the interview where Jules points out that like, no matter what she does, right? She is a you know a Died in the wool historian or historical researcher, right? Or like sifting through archives, trying to figure out like how to get archives to surrender things that normally people didn't think they were preserving necessarily, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, in the perception of, let's say, the other side, whatever that other side is, she's an activist, mm-hmm. right? A meanwhile, it's like, a well, brand. <laughs> yeah, right, like identity politics yes. activist or whatever, yeah. right? Like, meanwhile, you know, like the people who like are just asking questions, right? Who are like, oh, I'm just being—I'm the objective observer here. I'm just, you know, asking some important questions about you new know, kids and hormones and tr- puberty blockers, yeah. right? Yeah, right. They like are very frank about not having done any of the research, right? They're just like, ah, hey, it's like shooting from the hip here, right? And yet they're supposedly not the activists.
1: They're the reasonable ones. Yeah. The logical ones, the solid ground. Yeah.
2: The person who slaves 10 years over a, over a fricking manuscript, like that's not the activist, right? Like yeah. their question may have come from a place of care, but no, if you are just like, yeah, I didn't like really look into this, but like, this is like this question that occurred to me and like, why won't you answer it? Right. Like it's like, well, okay. Like, you know, that's, that's your right. You can do that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you're not the expert here. Right, and and I think that that's such an important thing, and and I should say that you know Jules is really beyond the the histories of the transgender child, which you know ranges from the nineteen twenties to the nineteen seventies, really you know, extremely well researched book. Wild, yeah, and it's also you know engaged with you know, TSQ, the Transgender Studies Quarterly, is really sort of. Helping further trans studies as an established discipline, and it's really telling that a lot of the people who are the most audible voices on trans issues, from let's say you know a less than pro-trans mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. like there's no there's no research there, there's no studying there. From what I've read, uh, I should say I mean, there is someone doing extremely serious work, but I I haven't seen it. It's mm-hmm. it's really people kind of having opinions. And sort of having a gut feeling about stuff, which, again, you can have a gut feeling about stuff, but it's just you know it's funny to me that in terms of how this panic has framed trans people, it's really, really striking that expertise and reasonable discussion, right which which includes the handling of evidence is somehow always implicitly located on the anti-trans side. Mm-hmm. when in fact, trans people and, and their allies have really done important work to really establish and maintain a scholarly discipline here. And yet they find it invalidated at at every turn. I should also mention, by the way, that uh, Jules has a really cool Substack newsletter that Mm, you should check out, Sad Brown Girl. It's Mm -hmm. it's really quite lovely. And that for those who don't want to, read a a history book, there is a book coming out uh, called The Trans Woman Manifesto. So that's going to be Jules the Opinion Haver rather than Jules the the Researcher, and so maybe uh, folks who like what they're hearing but aren't going to crack open a 300-page university press book that may wait for that and help the Substack newsletter to tide you
1: over. Good recommendations. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is, I'm going on the record with this, Adrienne, and I'm just going to say that like I offer the opinion that if we're gonna talk about trans scholarship and trans politics, we should talk to trans people while we're doing it. I mean, this is like a, that's pretty radical, I know, but I'm just I'm just throwing that out.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's but it it is one of these things that
1: <laughs> That was a joke. That was a joke. You were supposed to laugh. Oh sorry went on with your professor model.
2: <laughs> At the same time, you'd be shocked as how many parts of the academy still think that precisely not having a dog in the fight is somehow important, is some, somehow
1: God, yes, yeah.
2: indicative of a more or a visible dog in the fight. Right, 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 right. Because it's not like white people don't have a stake in discussions Clearly, of racism, or right? Or cis people uh, <laughs> don't have a
1: stake in trans discussions. Yes.
2: Yeah. So I think that there's, I think that it's, it's, to me, still shocking how much these kind of faux notions of objectivity and neutrality sort of still hold sway.
1: I just think that talking to verified experts leads us to better questions than the devil's advocate questions. Yeah. That's the yeah. Basic yeah. sort of like pedagogical stance i think we're taking here and
2: and i should say people should feel free to reach out and propose other experts and other mm-hmm. other kind of
1: like i said the inboxes have been interesting with some yeah i mean proposals lately keep it coming you know
2: we got an email and uh, we, we hope to be able to follow up on it from someone who's been accused of inventing cancel culture or starting it and we're like yeah, yeah we want to hear from mm-hmm. you this wasn't an angle we had initially thinking about but like Absolutely. This is something that I've thought a lot about. And I love the idea of, again, like you said, I think introducing our first episode, the idea of people being the best at reflecting their own experience.
1: Everybody is an expert on themselves,
2: you know? like Rather than us mouthing off about like what we think is happening, it's really nice to hear from people who were there, who can tell us what they thought, right? And then we can say, we think you did something different or whatever, but like it's okay, right? I mean, the overall point of the series is to you know ask patient questions
1: and to take serious people's accounts of their own experience mhm and and to consult people who we consider experts on some of those yeah. issues yeah. too you know like i think so much of the work that we do here you and i is admitting the limits of what we know mm-hmm. you know and admitting that there are people who are much better qualified than we are to speak on certain things and this would be one example of that one of many i think yeah
2: well, maybe we should just take it to the bridge. Take it to the bridge. I think the, the way we started the conversation was to talk about this idea of reasonableness, about how mm-hmm. this kind of just asking questions can often sort of implicitly cast you know, trans people who will sort of in annoyance say, like, this has all been covered. Please stop mm-hmm. asking mm-hmm. the same damn questions over and over again as the kind of unreasonable ones. And the person who is, right. again, raising the same damn questions that have been raised for 20, 30 years you know, as the reasonable ones. Mm-hmm. And I think that Jules' description of that language game was mm-hmm. extremely fascinating and a beautiful opener to what I thought
1: was a terrific discussion. So I'm I'm really excited. She's also just so funny and delightful, you Absolutely. know, like we've made it sound like we're trying to shove a lot of vegetables down people's throats, like pedagogically here, but like this Jules is just a witty, funny and delightful Absolutely. thinker uh, who I had a blast talking to. So let us saunter across that fateful bridge where we will talk to Jules Thank you for joining us again. We're gonna keep turning in this widening gyre of cancel culture and what it rubs up against, and uh, we hope you will keep joining us.
2: Slouching towards uh, the bridge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there we go.
2: <laughs> Enjoy. So Jules, we've been talking a lot about how there's this moral panic going on around trans people and specifically around trans kids, not just in the US, but really kind of worldwide. And I imagine that when people hear that, they often sort of think about these cruelly deranged bills coming out of places like Florida and Texas. And they're perhaps not thinking of like cover stories in The Atlantic or, you know, the transition pieces in The New York Times, because that can sound you know, pretty reasonable. It doesn't sound that panicked, frankly. So like in your essay in the new inquiry, which we'll link in the show notes, it really went a long way for me to explain why it still is a moral panic. Why, what the, what the function of reasonableness is, why the reasonable soundingness of it all is actually kind of a red herring. Um, Can you say a little bit more about the role that sort of the reasonable just asking of questions sort of has
0: in, in this moral panic? yeah thanks for that. I mean, I think it's a a kind of almost ecosystem level point of view, right to see you know the media sphere, but also the relationship of different liberal institutions to their supposed illiberal antagonists um, and more far right or authoritarian often anti-trans, evangelical, you know, what have you, we could go on and on. And the thing that I was interested in is precisely to what extent, you know, the sort of liberal functionaries that um, already sit atop of legitimate journalistic and other kinds of platforms, what role they play in, you know, what I think of as laundering illiberalism right and so that these things are not actually opposites and and so in my mind yeah you know we can think about a kind of symbiotic relationship that was brewing for a very long time i mean pick your historical point of reference but at the very least this wave of anti trans legislation and extreme policy making uh, vigilantism harassment intimidation threats all of that stuff was sort of brewing and kind of started taking off around 2015 2016 um, but that's also been sort of prepped and stoked by the kind of you know Atlantic cover story yeah. <laughs> industrial complex and you know all of these sorts of hmm I a non trans person just learned about you know there being trans children and and so I have some questions and um, you know and and there's actually a real intimacy between those two but I think what works so well. Right, is we can think of extremist or conspiracy theory ideas as arising, you know, say on whatever 4chan or other far right, you know, on Stormfront or whatever. But then they actually have to be made respectable if they want to travel all the way and arrive in the text of an actual bill in a state legislator. They have to arrive first on the sort of in the media diet of right-wing organizations, of think tanks, of the groups that give state legislators their marching orders, provide them with bill texts, right? Sometimes basically fly them out and give them workshops on how to do this work, right? There are actual programs and protocols being followed. And so those people play a role in it, but I also think that actually totally legitimate credential journalists do too. And they often do that, right, by modifying the rhetoric, by hedging and caveating everything that they say. And they don't also attribute the sources of their information. And so they have this sort of great alibi built in. We can think of sort of pundits, people like Helen Joyce in the UK, for example, who Mm -hmm. like published a book with like legitimately anti-Semitic tropes about like an international cabal of Jewish people somehow funding, quote unquote, trans transition or whatever, right? Like that's an extremist point of view, but it's presented in this very milquetoast, lukewarm liberal rhetoric so to me it's about how things are positioned and styled or someone in the u.s like abigail schreier whose book you know actually like contains a bibliography it was based in research it has a lot of disinformation and easily falsifiable claims in it but it always caveats them and so it just leaves them on the page right beside things that sort of half take them back. And so a reader can read that, right? And if a reader is already plugged into a more sort of extremist right-wing media sphere, while well, you read it, Right. To sort of affirm your bias. Right. And so there's this kind of basically networked intimacy. But what I think is really important about it is that it, it really thrives on plausible deniability. So these, you know, liberal pundits, maybe they, you know, make their money from substacks and, you know, lectures and being canceled or whatever. Right. Right. But they don't actually order people to go out and send death threats on their behalf, right? The people who run the Twitter accounts actually directing people to harass and intimidate doctors at hospitals or, you know, trans children and their families, right? Right. That's a separate, all of these groups are acting in concert, but they don't coordinate. They don't have to. That's the nature of the kind of media ecosystem in which we live. And so, you know, all of that is a very long way to say, I think, It's understandable and easy to assume that anti-transness is illiberal, right? And so that liberal institutions and liberal kinds of mouthpieces would be nominally pro-trans. And so if they're just asking questions, their questions are more innocent or more reasonable. But that performance of reason, I actually think, exists in a direct symbiotic observable relationship with things like conspiracy theory, white supremacy, or Christian evangelical authoritarian projects
2: yeah and i mean it always has the effect of casting anyone who's then offended by the question as the illiberal one i mean i'm I'm always amazed by the many stories about like creeping authoritarianism especially when outside of the united states when they're talking about the u.s and how often they don't manage to mention that like you know we almost had a right-wing coup in this country but rather they mention that like trans people got mad at this speaker and it's like Yeah, you know, that's speech too. If you say something, people will get mad at you. And this idea that in some way, any kind of opposition to, as you say, basically unlaundered transphobia, that somehow like any opposition to that is essentially illegitimate because it's kind of hysterical, it's overblown, it's paranoid, et cetera, et cetera, right? That seems so important for these kinds of discourses that even though you're the one obsessed with what's inside a 10 year old's pants you're the reasonable one right you're asking reasonable questions whereas like yeah. you know the person's like why why do you ask these questions doesn't that strike you as weird yeah. uh is actually the one with the problem
0: yeah i mean it's a contest over legitimacy and authority right and i think of course that kind of paranoia and projection right i mean you know projection has become a watchword and it's easily diluted but it's you know I think a useful enough psychoanalytic term to describe the mechanism here, right? That kind of projection. All of that is really intrinsic to authoritarian, paranoid, and also fascist, you know, politics historically. I mean, we don't we can look at precedence as a well-researched area. But again, part of what strikes me as maybe less appreciated in broad public conversations is it's also central to liberal, you know, democratic institutions, this kind of control and monopoly on who is authorized to speak and accusations of hysteria, bias, being too emotional, right? Like that is, that for a long time was an unchallenged norm that excluded women, people of color, people with disabilities, queer and trans people from ever speaking on our behalf, let alone about anything else, right? And so it's kind of makes for a, a peculiar experience, I would say, in the first person, right, being a trans woman of color, but also being a like a very boring, credentialed right. scholar. Like you know, I have a PhD. I've written peer-reviewed research. Like it's my job. Um, and I, you know, I'm not like a radical activist. I I hold an appointment at like a very you know stuffy you know problematic private university. We don't know
1: anything about that. We can't
0: we can't relate to that at <laughs> Yeah, we work at a radical laboratory. <laughs> right. <laughs> (laughs) But it's like, you know, it makes for a hilarious experience where it's like, right, so everything I do, which is, you know, remarkably belabored, you know, I spend years researching and thinking before I make any claims about anything, that's all hysterical, biased, absolutely disturbing, radical, whatever, right? Whereas people who just actually wing it, make stuff up, improvise, spread disinformation and lie, right? They can do so because it's a contest over what regime of truth is going to be accepted and institutionalized as true. And so it's no mistake that we're seeing battles over things like Papers of record, um, what's on television, what's reported in the news, what is endorsed as medical standards of care, what is taught at universities, what is taught in K through 12 education—like none of these are incidental because they really are power plays, right? For a kind of you know limited democratic frame that was pretty limited in the past. The public sphere was very homogenous, right? Until relatively recently, due to political efforts on the part of marginalized people and also maybe the shakeup of the internet, but in this sort of era now it's less clear who the centers of power are i don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing this kind of really frenzied really really intense kind of violent push from one Mm -hmm. so-called one side that accuses the the so-called other side of doing the same when in fact that's not true but it really you know again the root problem to me again is that weirdly enough or maybe not this sort of authoritarian potentially openly fascist side of this is not really in opposition to the liberal democratic center, Mm -hmm. right? They exist in a long symbiotic relationship that we might call the political history of the United (laughs) States, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, And so, you know, and I say that as a historian, you know, and there are different iterations of that. In a lot of other places, you know, I hate to even give people airtime by naming them, but you know, like Kathleen Stock, who's an academic, a philosopher, from what I can tell relatively little renown scholarly wise, but has become sort of really well known for claiming to have been forced out of her job for her transphobia, recently claimed that people who have trans children must declare such because they're so compromised, by caring for and loving their own children, that their, their speech is suspect and shouldn't be valued as much as someone like her who doesn't have any trans people in her life, I guess, um, and, and therefore whose dislike is much more objective, right? I mean, it's like, it doesn't take much, once we just pick these apart, I mean, these scenarios are so absurd. I mean, it, you know, it's like, but 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 it's also like, how many centuries of this form, of this problem have we been negotiating, yeah. right? And you can change change out the content. Right now it's trans people, especially trans youth and trans women. But, you know, we faced this, this struggle before, intrinsic to sort of Western democracies as imperial kind of statist projects.
1: That, Jules, really touches on one of the aspects of your historical work that I'm most excited to talk to you about. Like, let me back this up a little bit. One thing that Adrian and I have been processing as we approach this whole debate, from my perspective, one of the sort of overarching core concepts of the motivations that underlie these anti-trans bills these bills that you know separate children from their parents deny them medical care etc there seems to be this overarching assumption that there is a group of adults who know better than any individual what is best for that individual mm-hmm. and to my mind the sort of core concept of at least the leftist politics i would like to espouse is the belief that everybody is an expert on their own experience, right? That there is no superlative authority who can know better than me or you or Adrian what is best for us and what is inside us. Mm -hmm. I am a mother and a soft-brained woman, and I am so interested in your work, in your historical work on transgender children. And I would love to hear you talk about... What did you learn about what children have always known about themselves through Mm -hmm. this rigorous historical work? Can you speak on that a little bit, Jules?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like if I was in a graduate seminar, you know, I'd probably be like, well the very possibility of knowing the self has to be historically Okay. But you know, <laughs> I work in like Certainty the 19th century. Certainty is a Christian concept. Yes. Hey. yes. <laughs> and you know, a lot of that revolves around the figure of the child, right? So the, the totally. idea of children that we have in Anglo-American culture is not that old, Yes, right? It's really kind of a late 19th century invention. There's again, oodles and oodles libraries and libraries of books on this, but the notion of the innocent, protectable, ignorant child the child that does not possess knowledge of anything but including therefore self right and we you know sort of attached that notion of absence of innocence of not knowing to race gender and sexuality Oof. so in the united states it was racialized white and so black children have been systematically barred from access to the category of childhood itself who gets the privilege of innocence yeah, yeah. right and so if you're not innocent for example you are killable by the police or incar- you know you can be incarcerated sure. as an adult even when sure. you're a child etc But at the same time, right, that idea of sexual innocence, which is really central to the modern concept of the child, you know, was a thing that really imperiled actual children, right? Children lost a lot of ground in the late 19th century. They lost civil rights, like truly lost rights under the law and a separate category of inferiority of legal, social and, you know, personal inferiority was established, codified under the law, and given its own institution. So we treat children as inferior to adults on purpose and by design, and that has incredible consequences for their ability to act like human beings, right? Which is not to say that children are the same as adults, but adults are not the same as one another either. It's just like, you know, a moot point. Then we get to the 20th century and, you know, I'm looking back through these archives, finding all this remarkable evidence of children who certainly, by the time there are sort of trans words, right, especially transsexual, which is a word that comes into vogue in the 1950s, you find kids saying, hey, I'm 14. I went to the library, looked up the word transsexual, which however, they found that out, right? I read the medical literature on it. I read every newspaper article I can. And hey, Dr. Harry Benjamin, your name is at the end of every newspaper article I've ever read about a trans person. So I'm writing to your office in New York explaining that I am a transsexual and I would like to transition boom, right? And it's like, oh, wow. I mean, you know, that was my literal experience in the archive. The, the the kind of spark around which my eventual book came through was finding these letters and being like, oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. It's not just that doctors were interested in medicalizing children for all sorts of disturbing and harmful reasons. Children were like, hey, I understand medical literature, and no one's helping me in my life, so I'm just going to go straight to the source, right? But even before that, even before that, there's plenty of evidence of young children who, through whatever vernacular they had—I'm talking in the 1920s, 30s, but you can go back further if you want—articulate themselves to their families and are like, no, not that, this— Nah, not a boy. I'm a girl. And a lot of families are like, okay, mm-hmm. and there's no medical discourse to tell them. Otherwise they figure it out. However they figure it out. They dress their kid, how they want to be dressed. The kid goes to school, the way the kid wants to go to school has the name and like this stuff is already happened a long time ago. And so, although I don't think that that gives us a privileged window into knowing kind of philosophically, <laughs> you know, what a child is or what gender is. Cause those are really questions that that were used by medicine and psychiatry, you know, to harm those kids. I think it's just overwhelmingly evident, right, that as soon as there's a regime of gender (laughs) predicated on having to pull basically your inner self outward, well, kids start doing it. Now, not all of them and not reliably. I think this is one of the fascinating riddles that I like to make really clear, right, is I don't think Children should have to be held to this erudite standard in order to be taken seriously, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So that that 14-year-old who followed that inner urge to a library and read medical journals and wrote to a doctor, yeah, I mean, that's that's wild like that's a lot of work that should not be the st- what it means you know to be a trans child because not all kids did that right um, and and it, it just doesn't it doesn't line up with all of our weird progress narratives or or catastrophe narratives about American identity right it's like I was born you know 50 years after a lot of these kids that I write about in my book or 40 years later and it's like that didn't happen to me in my childhood hmm. I grew up in Canada in a super lefty liberal place but there was there were major Trans words circulating in my environment as a child, they may have gone inside my head, but they didn't do anything to me at the time. Mm. I didn't go read these things in the library, I didn't write to doctors, right? And so, you know, it took me longer. We'll never know why. Some people gravitate and some don't. But I think what we do know is that we deeply mistreat children because we've infantilized them mm. in our culture. And so we make them vulnerable, we set them up to be endangered in the world that they live in and then we punish them for knowing things right and so i just think you know taking children seriously is a project that serves so many ends right? It's actually like a racial justice issue. It's a disability justice issue. It's an immigration justice issue. It's also a trans justice issue. And a feminist issue. Yeah. I mean, well, one of the interesting outcomes, I think, of my research was like, "Hmm, a lot of the problems trans kids face have almost nothing to do with being trans. Because there's some overarching framework and inequity between adults and children that they cannot overcome. The number one barrier all the kids that i write about in my book faced it's one single thing it was the medical age of consent Mm. you could not until the 1970s go into a doctor's office until you were 21 and then it was dropped only to 18. well all these kids i'm talking about writing letters to doctors every single doctor is like yeah that's whatever but i can't i can't help you i can't help you Your, your parent or guardian has to consent on your behalf and so Until age 18 after puberty, after After all these things. Yep. And there are kids in the 60s, by the way, you know, before it was common practice to even potentially prescribe puberty blockers who are like, well, I don't want to go through puberty. Are you ridiculous? I know how hormones and endocrinology work. If I start hormones now, I'll have a different, right? There's so much about that. That's fascinating.
1: And one of the threads I would pull out that is fascinating about that is how thoroughly the research you just cited debunks the notion that the internet is turning kids gay and trans, right? (laughs)
0: like I
1: love this image and I relate to this image of these bookish little kids looking up every piece of literature Mm -hmm. they can find and writing to the doctor and like that kind of self-knowledge and motivation in this totally analog way, right? Like people have been desperate for this community and this information and this validation for the longest time in a way that history evidences, like that is really mm. exciting to me. Like, what an important discovery mm. that is in, in debunking that totally bunkus argument that the the Tumblr is turning kids trans, <laughs> like, right? So interesting,
2: and and I mean it reveals that even though there are a disturbing number of cis gay men and cis lesbians involved in yeah in these, these anti trans yes. discourses, it's ultimately very old anti gay canard too yeah, i mean totally right the three of us are all aware of the well of loneliness which has a scene like that where thinking Stephen that. goes into uh, their dad's library and tries to understand their condition and the funny thing is every time you teach that book it's not clear that they come up with the right answer it's possible yeah. that they find out they're a lesbian it's possible they are misinformed and they're in fact trans but whatever that gesture of seeking that out existed in the 1920s it existed mm-hmm. in the 1880s 1890s when Richard von Kraft Ebing would get these letters from people and would collect them in books even if someone is themselves LGBT they're mobilizing against something that has been crucial to the LGBT community mm-hmm. for 150 years it really is, is chopping away at one of the pillars at one of the foundations of yeah as Laura was saying I may not know everything about myself but I know it a hell of a lot better than you yeah yeah
1: I know enough to know not this is a really important phase of development. Yeah, exactly. yes. <laughs> well, and Adrian, I'm so glad I was totally thinking about the Well of Loneliness as both of you were talking. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought it up because one of the things that it also contains is an example of what Jules was just describing of this, like this is taking place in like the 1920s mm-hmm. an example of a kind of parental validation of like, yeah. okay you're a boy, you can mm-hmm. wear boy clothes, you can ride the horse straddling, you know, like we will sort of go along with you on this obviously there's some like flies in that oil too, but I think it's interesting that we do see an example of exactly the phenomenon Jules just described.
0: Yeah, well, you know, our moral panics today might echo things that have happened before, but we've never had this level of scrutiny or interest before. Never mind this level of isolation of trans people as discrete, right? I mean, I appreciate this invitation here because You know, the overlap between being gay, lesbian and I mean, it's just like those distinctions are largely irrelevant for most people in the Western world until like two seconds ago. And it's not even a done deal. Right. And so I think part of the, the danger and the fevered pitch of the moment is actually that we are following along about, you know, since the 1970s, a real intense push to separate gender as we think of as a kind of internal identity from sexuality, as we think of as a kind of sexual orientation, it's not clear to me that there's any good reason to do that. Um, it's what has been happening. So, okay. interesting. Yeah. But there are many, many, many people, you know, in different times and places, but also just around the world that refute the certainty of that distinction. And that distinction, as I'm, Fond of saying um, is not one invented by feminists. It was not one invented by queer people. It is not one invented by trans people. It was invented by psychiatrists and psychologists Mm -hmm. in a really harmful clinical context where they are Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to force people to align their anatomy with their so-called gender identity, with their so-called sexual orientation, or at least sexual behavior, right? And so it's just like, yuck. Um, and, and it has served to estrange uh, part of what post-Stonewall LGBT mainstream politics means, talking here especially of the United States, means the betrayal of trans people, particularly trans femininity, um, which had a really central cultural, political, and social role in the gay world in the gay life prior to that era. And so, you know, part of what I'm also thinking about is just how much more, you know, it takes trans people have been hung out to dry a lot of times I'm, I'm, I'm currently finishing up a, a book manuscript this summer about the history of trans misogyny and so let me tell you Ooh. trans women have been hung out to dry pretty much yep. by everyone everywhere yep. all the time for at least like two centuries in a row now at this point um that's the that's the time period I'm writing about but you have to think about you know the different forms of social isolation yes. right and so one that we're facing today around trans youth is that also these kids are more disconnected except for online than ever, because this, interestingly enough, I think we are living through the first moment in time where there is a prevailing assumption that that trans children ought to stay with their family of origin. Oh, really good point. Yes. Right. There's a pro-trans version of this. Yeah. The pro-trans version is, well, these families should love them and take care of them. The anti-trans point is those children ought to stay in their families and not be allowed to be trans, but actually both equally agree that children belong in those families and are sort of quasi pieces of property within them. That is a real disadvantage for the kids, right? I mean, you know, there are other advantages that they enjoy in this moment. I think definitely the ability to organize and communicate online is a big one that the kids I write about Mm -hmm. in my book didn't have. They had to become pen pals and meet up Right. And things that are really hard to do. If, say, you live in rural Ohio, like one of the kids I talk about from the 1960s. But on the other hand, those kids had like so little pressure to stay at home. I mean, you know, Sylvia Rivera famously leaves home at 10. At 10, she leaves Long Island and goes to New York looking for people like her, right? Again, another amazing example of that inner drive that sends some trans Mm -hmm. kids outward, right? Just like, I can't stay where I am. It's not because her family didn't love her. Uh, You know, the way she at least tells the story is that she was living with her grandmother and, you know, people in her community came to her grandmother and said like, Look, your child is unpato, like you know, is is like a faggot, right? And is having sex with people, men in the community, and you, you we can't have this. And so Sylvia sort of internalized that that shame and, and danger being put on her family and was like, I have to leave for the benefit of my grandmother, oh, right? Very complex, but the the kind of corollary today, right, is that like, well, we've got to keep that kid in that family, right? Which, you know. Might be good for some kids, but my God, just like as gay people, I feel like we just have the luxury to be like, yeah, no, 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 I don't, I don't ever assume the people that brought me into this world have my best interests at heart or that I have to maintain the kind of relationship that was handed to me um, at birth or at any age. I can always renegotiate that. I can always let it be. I can always come back to it later. I can always find other kinship structures or modes of support. It is interesting to track some of the things that have changed, yeah. right? I mean, some things have changed. And I think the moral panic of today is working overtime to sort of double down on the idealized family. And so, in fact, then, is the nominally pro-trans left? I mean, unfortunately, right, the kind of feminist politics of family evolution have never been less popular because, you know, neoliberal economics have just devastated hmm. Any form of support we have. Like, unfortunately, the family is one of the last things, supposedly, keeping us alive, which it barely is, right? <laughs>
2: thinking about human beings in terms of gender always will destabilize the kinds of roles and identities Mm. that we assume in everyday life and to say Mm. well these are socially constructed and you know obviously i want to have access to this role a society that denies me that better have a pretty freaking good reason to do that but it's interesting that it always gets sort of subsumed under this moniker of identity politics right which mm. some of the the most important texts that i think in this evolving discourse were very much opposed to and saying yeah if your son is now a daughter that's one possibility yeah. but maybe it's way more complicated than that right and the way we think of families and the way i think often mm. trans kids also get mobilized in a way that sort of says the system stays the same just the, the person flips identifications, right? That always strikes me as short-sighted too, right? The fact is there are a lot more systems to unravel, I would say, than to just say, you know, uh, I want to fit into the system a different way. Right, And, and it, it strikes me, I think you're absolutely right, that there is a kind of left liberal affirmative discourse that likewise kind of might accidentally play into the hands of some of these right wingers in the sense that it in some way shores up the legitimacy of the system while giving the individual a little bit more yeah. leeway of how they're going to yes. navigate that system. Is that, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, trans inclusive, the liberal position is laughable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has done nothing to stop this tide of anti-trans, not just anti-trans legislation, but moral panic. Violence. Violence, right? we're Talking yeah. about lives, not just lives lost. I mean, we get told a lot we have to worry about the kids who will die, but it's also lives ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, lives, yeah. you know, immiserated, made worse. Quality yeah. of life lost, right? And this liberal mm-hmm. protective model, it's not curious about trans life. It wants to domesticate and control trans life in order to maintain the very set of systems and institutions Mm -hmm. that have excluded trans people in the first place. So it's just, to me, it's like sort of dead on arrival as a proposition. But like, you know, let's use the example of Texas where, you know, that really egregious policy was forwarded by the Attorney General's office, then supported by the governor, right, issuing an opinion, trying to do what the state legislator had failed to do the year before, which was say that anyone who affirms, just like broad. Broadly takes care of a trans kid right i'm not talking even about like giving a kid hormones i'm talking about just like giving a kid pizza saying yeah that's your name yeah Yeah. giving them pizza letting them wear their clothes right that they are presumptive child abusers under texas law and and, under texas law it's not just mandated reporters like teachers or counselors who have to report instances of child abuse they're technically speaking Every adult in the state of Texas is required, right? So the state is like, hey, all adults, you are required to supervise and inform on your neighbors, pick up that phone and call and say, I see someone around a trans kid, that person must be a child abuser, right? Okay, so the liberal outcry around that is all about how dare you take mandated reporting and weaponize it against these beautiful, innocent children. It's like, okay, well, hold on. Why does the state have the power to deputize everyone over the age of 18 or 21 to inform on their neighbors in the first place? And also, um, wait a minute, what does the child protective services system do? What does the foster care system do on a structural level? It has been, was designed and has never stopped pursuing this intentional uh, point, which is to among other things, wage war on the black family, just like an absolute intentional uh, purpose of that system Mm -hmm. to destroy indigenous kinship structures and facilitate cultural genocide. And more recently, to break up migrant families, right. right? And they're, you know, calling upon the immense police state of the federal apparatus along the border as well. Like, so we would be okay if we said, no, I'm not trans kids. They're good and innocent. They should go back to their families. They're not being abused, right? But all these other kids in that system that already exists. Mwah, we love like we're gonna let that pass right well hold on a second so it's just like the liberal inclusive model says the problem here is just that some people didn't say yes to trans people existing right right it's why like at a certain moment i you know wish was our nadir uh, several years ago when oreo cookie tweeted like trans people exist and we were like what thanks oreo cookie but like that's not a political statement that's right. just like a descriptive statement like existing is useless when it's a declarative statement of fact yeah <laughs> yeah and so it's like well trans people exist is really good if you don't want anything to change in the world trans people don't need recognition and they don't need the blessing of anyone trans people need money <laughs> trans people need hormones trans people need surgeries trans people need relief from policing they need relief from over incarceration they need access to the formal labor market those are the biggest issues trans people have faced, you know, since all of those things have existed. Yeah. So it's like mm, the liberal kind of playbook here. I really, I think, again, it is symbiotically a part of, again, if I were being more academic, what I would call the biopolitical mandate to to utilize gender as an axis of racial governance and of statecraft Mm -hmm. and of Mm -hmm. colonialism, Mm -hmm. right? And so we are already way past the idea that some people have to die in order to improve the lives of other people. That's an axiom of modern statecraft, right? And so trans people fit well into that pre-existing calculus that sort of moves the variables of gender and race, you know, with time. But whether or not trans people are investigated by Child Protective Services isn't really the crucible of that broader violence, right? Of course I don't think they should be doing that, right? But at the same time, as I've argued many times in public, if every single piece of anti-trans legislation were to be defeated tomorrow, if every single anti-trans politician were to lose re-election in the next cycle, if every single anti-trans pundit were to lose their platform or their job or be cancelled or whatever fantasy they have of their own Um, glorious erasure, right? We would be back at a deadly status quo in which to be trans as a sort of status condition in the world, in the United States, Primarily leads to downward mobility socially and economically for most people, but specifically and especially if you are trans feminine or a trans person of color. And, you know, we would still as a class be subject to premature wearing out and death. That wouldn't go away. That's been ongoing for so long that this latest political intensification is coming rather late in that game. It is Mm -hmm. dangerous. The the collateral damage is real. It will intensify that sort of slow death, make it move faster, right? But I really think we have to see these as intimately related. So the spectacular Mm -hmm. version Mm -hmm. of transphobia is to help shore up the everyday mundane wearing out and killing, all right? So for every innocent white trans child who absolutely should not be forcibly detransitioned in Alabama, that's a horrifying experience. But for every white middle class trans child who's been forcibly detransitioned in Alabama, how many? black and brown trans kids in Alabama have never even been recognized as trans in the first place but have had their gender uh, their gender transgressions be used as pretext to accelerate the school to prison pipeline bearing down on them already how many of them have been pulled out of class have been suspended have been subject to police interrogation are more likely to end up in juvenile detention or in that foster care system and they don't even they're not even in the position to have health care taken away right and that's not to say that we have to make those two figurative children compete. The point is that their experiences are directly dependent on one another, and none of the political strategies I've seen forwarded in the public sphere have taken that into consideration. They all want to ignore the black and brown trans child and go all in on the white trans child because that racial innocence is the quintessential American project yeah. of of childhood. I mean this is already the point that the Combaya River Collective Statement makes,
2: right? It's not
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not, yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. It's not yes. that these,
2: it's not that this group is uniquely deserving of of attention and support. It might be, but we don't we're not saying that. What we're saying is if a solution doesn't address them also, well, it's not a very good solution and it, it doesn't actually advance the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that, that's beautiful how you're putting that, that, you know, that uh, a rollback's a nice thing, but like rollback to what, you know, to, to a really bad status quo? Well,
0: and meanwhile, what have, you know, black and brown trans women organizers been doing since time immemorial. Right. Mutual aid projects, getting money into people's hands, getting them yep. housing, yep. getting them jobs when they're coming out of the system, when they've been incarcerated and getting them access to healthcare. I mean, like, Man. we already... There are incredible, incredible activist networks and mutual aid networks, especially led by black trans women throughout the South that are already doing work that, like, frankly, just outmaneuvers all of this, right? They don't even have to be like what's our specific plan for young people because like they don't they don't make all these bizarre distinctions in the first place right and so it's like again if those people were to be leading right in coalition with other folks you know most impacted right by that the stratification which is literally kimberly crenshaw's definition of intersectionality (laughs) i mean it's like we (laughs) already know all of that but of course that's, all of that work yeah. is actually at the margins when we think about this, this public sphere version that we sort of started this conversation with, right? The moral panic, right? The New York Times, da-da-da, the illiberal pundits, the you know, folks asking people to go attack people at hospitals, right? They don't even know. <laughs> they don't even know about black and brown trans people, which is like fine by me. I'm like, you don't need to know about that. It's none of your business. Yeah, they also don't seem to... But, but you know what I mean? Like They also seem to not know about trans men, which is Well, really yeah, funny. I mm-hmm. mean, trans men were just discovered by authoritarians like five years ago, you know, for complicated reasons that I think are actually worth, you know, thinking about more broadly, right? But again, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question that I see a lot of infighting about, unfortunately, for lack of a better phrase on trans Twitter, let's say, where it's like people really want to parse different degrees of anti-trans political violence or assign mm. different degrees of um, vulnerability or culpability, right? And I'm like, you know, I don't actually think like our antagonists are not that discriminate. They, they're not that capable of discerning because it would not serve their interests to create such fine distinctions. Yeah. And by the flip side, you can never be good enough for them it's impossible yeah although i would say maybe it's so the reason i brought that up is not
2: necessarily that i would say that like you know some people have it better than others or something like that some trans people have it better than others what is striking though is as i'm hearing you talk about the kind of very concrete the very sort of local forms of resistance of self-articulation et cetera, et cetera right what's noticeable is how Deliberately, sort of free-floating and abstract, yes. the anti-trans discourse tends to be, right? Like it's always going back to this question: like, what is gender? What is a woman? Like, what you know? What is yeah. childhood? Who? Yeah. What is a woman? Like, right? Like, it's always their gotcha. You're like, I what? And baby, you don't know what a woman is either. So chill. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And then and then <laughs> leaving and then leaving trans men entirely out of it is sort of in keeping with that. That you just kind of you just forget about presumably half that population because it didn't occur to you there is a kind of there's a kind of slapdashness about Mm -hmm. it all right like where a whole kind of thing feels like a a weird sort of debate society problem and i'm i'm wondering do you think that that's part of the point that like the cruelty is exactly in like this may be your life it is my neat twitter gotcha right or it's my you know, yeah. I got canceled for saying this, you know, kind of up ed right? Like there's a kind of...
1: The function, the very function of racism is to keep us from doing our work. Like this is exactly what that describes. Yeah. It doesn't present as racism most readily in this example, but that's exactly the kind of distraction and devil's advocacy and sidelining that I think we're describing. Would you agree, Jules? Yeah.
0: But again, I would say... This is a common problem shared by every constituency in this tango. Yes. Right. And there are more yes. than two, right? So it's like, yes, the illogic and irrationality of anti-trans political violence, it's pretty, it's pretty absurd. It's pretty extreme. It actually thrives on being just unimaginably easy to falsify, right? Just Completely fabricated claims right. take about two seconds of, of Googling to find out that they're not true. But that's that's the right. point, because then, you know, by the time one is debunked, you move on to the next one. But then, you know, here's the thing, right? It's like, OK, well, the, the sober intellectualists over at the American Medical Association, I mean, you know, it's like, they're not as absurd, right? But like, do I wholeheartedly accept their, you know, reasonable, sober data? No, it's absolutely biased nonsense, right? Built out of histories of extreme harm um, that I'm not interested in endorsing. And then I also always want to point out, we have to be so careful not to form our political strategy in pure reaction to that because it breeds opposite. And it's an affective game, I get it. It's about feeling, right? It reminds us that we're not rational creatures. But when people are like, so-and-so wants to ban pronouns, but in the tweet where she said that, she used three pronouns. Gotcha. I'm like, honey, that's not going to matter. You think you think when the police, yeah. like, arrest people, you can be like, well, actually, you know, you can't butt actually your way out of shit like that, right? <laughs> and so it's like, we have to be... Really thoughtful. And I think to me, again, it's like so much of transphobia tries to exceptionalize trans people, but then a lot of pro trans positions adopt that exceptionalization because, again, they do not want to antagonize yeah. the system. Yeah. But the thing is, sex and gender are so incredibly contradictory and inconsistent. That is, by definition, how they operate. That is the thing that my book ends up sort of you know, arriving at is like, you can't game this system. It's designed to not make sense. It's designed to constantly fall flat on its face. Doctors, psychologists, everyone in charge of determining what sex and gender are, are like the most anxious, stressed out people you'll ever meet because the more they research it, the less (laughs) it makes sense. But that never weakens their position. It only empowers them even further because if you have a regime, a binary, let's say, that is obviously not, functional at a logical Mm -hmm. level, right? That's perfect because it becomes impervious to critique. You can't just point out as people are often like to do and use trans people or frankly use intersex people as some sort of debate points, right? Well, actually, like, no, it's designed for you to do that, right? And while you're busy doing that, right? The thing is, is adjusting and moving on. I do think, you know, again, the history of race science is really instructive in this regard, I was gonna say this sounds a lot like the history of racism. Yeah, and like who, who, you know, that kind of idea that we're supposed to debunk racial science is what won out as a sort of look at my skin. How could I possibly be? Yeah,
2: like oh wow, yeah, that'll convince any racist ever.
0: (laughs) Right, it's just not how it works. It's not you know there are these interpersonal scales, but we're not like life is not debate club. Thank God. I mean, I would just be as a woman, I would be miserable. Um, (laughs) And so I think though there's great relief in Mm -hmm. abandoning that pretension that our job is to become the most rational, airtight, reasonable, fact-laden whatever people. And once we finally achieve that state of level enlightenment, that the powers that be, the ruling class will be like, oh, you know what? You did good, honey. You're in. You're in the charm circle. Have a participatory (laughs) lollipop. I get Get it it, It's not going to work what about the last 200 <sighs> years of American history or no. European history? Like lead you to believe that the meritocracy of it all is real. And that reason is something consistently practiced and espoused by people in power. Right. And so I just think like, you know, again, once we de-dramatize and de-exceptionalize trans people's experience of having genders, like we all are obliged to have genders. You know, it is what it is for now. That's fine by me. Um, But you know, it's like, Don't look to trans people to solve some sort of massive problem and deliver us to utopia, because I just think that that's ultimately a distraction. So I have two questions about
2: this. So first off, I want to, because I haven't done that yet, I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this, because, I mean, I knew I wanted to talk to you about it, but I was like, well, maybe Jules is just sick of talking about turfs, right? Like, (laughs) there is that problem that like, there's so much exciting work being done in your field that isn't concerned with Mm -hmm. transphobes all the time. And it sucks that kind of you keep getting sort of asked to do that. But on the other hand, maybe that's in some way, also what this discourse is about. The same way that for a long time, I feel like any African American cultural production that was taken seriously, broadly, like outside of African-American community, had to have some something to say about racism and white people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is this kind of like, I, I think that one of the specters in these kind of debates is on the one hand, they don't really want to engage with trans people. But on the other hand, they would be horrified to learn that trans people just don't think about them that much. What's yeah. that that famous uh, madman uh, meme, yeah. right? Like, I, I hate you. I don't even think about you, right? Like, yeah. by making trans people kind of defend their existence over and over again, it kind of, as, as Laura was alluding to the Morrison line earlier, right? Like, it keeps you busy. Mm-hmm doing just that as opposed to doing whatever the fuck else you'd want to do with your day, right? Mm -hmm. One place where this came up for me was that someone, it was one of those debates that went nowhere and and someone was like, well, you know, there's a lot of people detransitioning, you know, and trans (laughs) activists won't tell you that. I'm like, the most famous, I would say, trans novel of the last five years is called Detransition Baby. Like... (gasps) It's out there, my friend. Like this is not some kind of well-kept secret. Like you know, there are interesting discourses. The thing is, it's not there for you to consume, for you, Kathleen Stock to like engage with. Like that might be melancholy. Other kids are hanging out without you. That's that's painful. But that's life. I, I do wonder whether this sort of centering of questions of existence, of knowledge, right? As you say, like all these debate club questions that really don't make anyone's life better or worse, right? Like, if a child tells their parent, I think I'm trans, would you want that parent to say, are you sure? You know, well, gender is just a construct or whatever you'd want to say. No, you'd want to say, what do you need, yeah. right? Like, yeah. and, and that is absolutely answerable without any of the epistemological questions that that seem to dominate this this panic, where it's like, how do we know? What if we make a mistake? What if we miss, you know? Yeah. Like, what if this person who thought they were trans was actually genderqueer? It's like, Oh no. Yeah. I don't I don't actually know what that would mean. I'm I like it could mean literally anything.
0: But it's NBD. I mean, I just think ultimately the good news, right, is that yeah, no one has to become an expert in trans anything. You don't really need to read any of the the literature in trans studies. Um, you know, it's really, really easy to diffuse all of this, right? And to say I'm I'm done on the other end. It's one simple precept. As long as you accept that being trans is not only a good outcome, but a happy present state, and that it's not up to you to know what it means to be trans, then the end of the rest of this nonsense. You can get on with the, the project of living um, in concert with other people. I mean, a lot of transphobia is about Anxiously trying to sever our social interdependence. Trans people are not the only people with genders, and non-trans people are not separate from trans people. We are all interdependent, and gender is so intensely sociable as is sexuality, that we actually are already implicated with one another. And so I, I understand, you know, when the aggrieved turf is trying to stake a claim and saying, "Well, no." your existence threatens me, what they're really saying is my role in the social order is to be the superintendent of everyone inferior to me. Perhaps I'm a white woman, right? Perhaps I'm a white feminist. Um, perhaps I'm an evangelical white man with a lot of access to the halls of power. Well, your role has historically been superintendents of others, right, who are deemed racially or otherwise inferior. And, but, you know, when that ideology gives way, it doesn't give way to chaos. It gives way to sociability, we are all related to one another through gender. We all share aspects of mm. things that undo us, that don't belong to us, that exceed us. And it's interesting, but it's kind of benign. And um, There's like nothing really to be done about the fact of that. Mm-hmm. What is to be done is the project of living together in the world. That That's great though. <laughs> like That sounds a lot more interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, when your kid comes to you and says, I might be trans, you say, great what's next for you what do you need what do you want i'm glad you're here because i would always be glad that you're here your value is not contingent on who you are or how you Mm -hmm. present yourself in the world your value is inherent you command respect because you're here because you're already in relationship with me and i have an obligation of care towards you so that can't that can't be taken away simple as that the rest is just fluff
1: You were born worthy of love and belonging. Mm -mm. There's nothing you have to do to earn that. I feel like that's a beautiful place to land. Can I share with you one, like, ground-level lived experience of gender story that happened to me this week? Always. So I have two children, both assigned male at birth, and... uh, the younger one has just been really into like feminine accoutrement lately he's really into stockings he's really into wow. jewelry he really loves watching me put on makeup like he's he's just expressed a lot of curiosity which I have no problem with and have no interest in dissuading
0: yes. and
1: nail polish is really where it landed last week and I have I have gold nail polish on and he was like mama your nails are so beautiful my favorite color is red could I have red paint on my nails and like kept asking me about it and really the annoyance i I felt in the moment was just because I was watching TV, not because I wanted to gender police him. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this is the moment. Like, this is the moment where like the heteronormative script would require me to be Mm -hmm. like no that's just for girls you can't do that and like obviously that's not the parent I want to be or the family I want to build so that's how I found myself on the floor you know painting a four year old's red nail polish and he loved it he was so excited about it and it was such you use the word benign Jules and it was such a benign moment it was just like this is the activity that we're doing right before we do the light bright and like watch an episode of Sesame Street and it didn't have to be more laden than that and it was just so interesting to watch that sort of like moment course through our family and like pass and just like be fine just be
0: benign yeah and it doesn't have to mean more than what it meant you also get to be more present exactly for it and enjoy it and I just yes. think that that's a gift to find these moments in your life where you're actually like doing the thing totally. and not imagining what it means to 100 screaming strangers who are trying to to make law you know antagonize you for doing that
1: Exactly. It was just like a cute little art project on the floor and some time that we got to spend together. So, like, I would have been really sad if that opportunity had passed us by, mm-hmm. I guess was my parental takeaway. Yeah.
2: So, it also might go some way to explaining why this kind of relaxed attitude is kind of impossible, especially in the missionary. United States and, (sighs) frankly, in the UK, which you know for a long time got off on basically telling a quarter of the globe how to about how to live, well precisely the inability to just let something be something. Right? We met these natives; we are stealing their stuff, and also they do this other thing that we don't understand. Oh, it must be threatening, right? Like as opposed to like, yes,
1: let us eradicate. People just
2: do stuff, right? Like there's a lot of people in this world; they do different things. Maybe it doesn't require you know a white British person to like interpret it and be like, actually, I think this is a form of rebellion or it's dangerous or it's social contagion. You know, there is a kind of imperial nostalgia too here to the immense privilege and the probably also joy, frankly, of getting to tell other people what they're, the shit they just kind of get up to in the normal performance mm-hmm. of their lives, like what they might mean and be like, oh, actually, you know, this is very troubling. And I'm very troubled by it. Or What your kids are doing is very troubling to me, right? This is where I think we get back to the fact that, it's especially on the internet, that these kinds of discourses become so virulent. The internet gives us a good sense that, yeah, there's a whole lot of very different people out there, right? Like, it's a big-ass planet, and now you get to see a lot of it. There is a kind of inability to to just kind of let other people be.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, it comes back again to this tension between curiosity and certainty, right? If I were certain of gender policing in that moment, I would have said, no, absolutely not. You are a boy. No nail painting shall take place. And instead, like curiosity just says, like, what are you interested in about this? How can we spend this time together? And like, I don't know, curiosity just seems like a happier way to live life. Jules has an appointment to get That's to surgery, and right. we need to shut up.
2: What overrides everything? There's theory, there's praxis, and then there's acupuncture, and acupuncture outranks everything. <laughs> I think Trotsky, Trotsky says that.
0: Well, yeah, and so does my <laughs> nerve system, which says, "Let's take a break from from the business of the world." But no, I could easily talk to you all all day. This has been such a stimulating conversation. There's so much more I, you know, would love to dig into at some point. Um, but you know, thank you for. For having me on to talk about all of this it's it's been really interesting and yeah uh, lots to chew on the
2: Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrienne Dobb and Laura Goode. It's produced by Laura Goode and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon.
1: We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.